You're listening to the So What Podcast. I think that it's it's often overstated, the role of politics shaping theology. So my view would be in that regard that really what you see is truth coming through. Sometimes the truth is aided by the political situation. Sometimes it's hindered, but it's still there. And I think the clearest way to see that politics is not the main thing shaping theology is that when the politics is against orthodoxy, the orthodoxy still wins out in the end. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On this episode, we are again happy to have Dr. Rob Olson with us in studio, this time to discuss Eutyches and monophysitism. Dr. Olson received his PhD in early church history from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He currently serves as Associate Professor of Christian Studies at the University of Mobile. Well, before we head over to the discussion, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode may be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the SoWhat Podcast. Let's head over to our discussion with Dr. Olson. Dr. Olson, thank you for being back on the So What podcast. Last time we had you on to talk about Nestorius and Nestorianism, and this time we'd like to talk about a guy named Eutyches. That's right. I'm glad to be back. Eutyches is an interesting figure. He's kind of mysterious. For for our English listeners, you might know him as Eutyches. So, uh, he has I, a strange spelling to his name. That's right. I say the American uh, pronunciation, which is Eutyches. But in in order to understand Eutyches, this really is the opposite side of Nestorianism. And really, in order to understand what's going on with Eutyches, you have to know what happens with Nestorianism because he is reacting against what he thinks he sees in other people as a form of Nestorianism. So, And for a full account of that, uh, listeners, if you're just joining the podcast for the very first time, the episode that we just had previous to this one devoted the show to... Nestorian. So the Nestorian controversy never really ended. In 433 AD, there was a, a formula of reunion where Cyril from Alexandria was the bishop, had an agreement with John of Antioch, the bishop of Antioch, over how we can speak about the natures in Christ. Cyril preferred to say that Christ exists one nature out of two, Nestorius preferred to say Christ exists in two natures. Now, that phrase was taken up by other Antiochian theologians, but they understood it in an orthodox way. Nestorius, as we dealt with before, 
has an unorthodox understanding of the natures in Christ because they are separate with no interaction at all, so that Jesus, when he dies on a cross, it's only the human part of him that dies on a cross. John of Antioch understands the, the natures of Christ in an orthodox way, where we can say Christ exists in two natures. That means he is fully God, fully man. Cyril would say Christ is one nature out of two. He's fully God, fully man. Right. We're saying the same thing using different language. Neither one prefers the other language, but they recognize we're saying the same thing. That was in 433 AD. In 444 AD, Cyril dies. And his followers never liked that he agreed with that language that they saw as Nestorian. The followers of John of Antioch, many of them were like, hooray, Nestorius' views live on, which again was not proper. John was not Nestorian. He did not intend to have a Nestorian understanding of Christ. And Cyril did not understand to have, uh, or he was able to understand the difference, but his followers didn't. And so you have two groups of people that really do not see eye to eye. Like a theological populist movement? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that the followers were not theologically astute, whereas Cyril and John, again, this is Olson's view. This is my bias, I guess. I think that John and Cyril understood what was going on, and their followers just could not accept the other language. Mm -hmm. For John's followers, they're like, Cyril's language is monophysite, which is a phrase that means You've taken both natures of Christ and put them into one so that it's not... Green Plato. Exactly. It is Green Plato. From the last That's show. a reference to the last That's show. That's right. Yes, it's yeah. a blended nature that's neither God nor man. It's some superhuman God, man. I actually had a student send me a picture of Jesus on the cross who's green like the Hulk busting himself off the cross. It's a good picture of Eutychian Christ because the Hulk is neither man nor nor beast. He's some weird, you know, thing in between. And so they were showing Jesus, part human, part God, this kind of distorted picture. So anyway, the, the followers of John were like, yeah, those that view, Cyril's view was a, a mixed up view. We don't like that. And Cyril's followers were like, John's view, his phrase is Nestorian. So there's an uneasy truce. The man who replaces Cyril is a man by the name of Dioscorus. Dioscorus is very politically minded, and he is not a theological genius like Cyril, at least in my mind. He's, we got to get this terminology out. Cyril agreed to use this terminology because he was sick, which he happened to be sick at the time, but they thought, ah, he was sick. He gave in at a time of weakness. This is not truly Cyril's views. We need to get rid of this. The Eutychian scenario is really has a lot of political intrigue. What happens is in 448 AD, there is a local synod in Constantinople. That just means it's just a little local. It'd be like a Baptist association meeting, right? This is not a universal council. It's not ecumenical. It's just we have this little council that's going on. At this council, Flavian is the bishop of Constantinople at the time. And he's like, okay, well, we have our little shindig here. And after a few days, everything's going fine. And then all of a sudden, there's a man by the name of Eusebius of Doralium. There's like 8,000 Eusebiuses in church history, so... <laughs> Just like there are Johns. Yeah, we always have to make sure we use the last name, right, which is where they're from. So Eusebius of Doralim, at the end of this little little local synod, he said, hey, there's a there's this guy named Eutyches, and he keeps saying I'm a Nestorian. We need to deal with this. 
Eutyches was an Archimandrite, which means he's the head of a, of a monastery of about 300 monks. He's 70 years old, and he was a very strict follower of Cyril. So like Dioscorus, he does not like the terminology that says Christ exists in two natures. For him, that's Nestorian. Now again, we saw with John of Antioch, you can say Christ exists in two natures and be completely orthodox. It's an acceptable phrase, depending on what you mean. Eutyches could not accept this. Dioscorus could not accept this. And a third guy, Chrysaphius, could not accept this. Now, Chrysaphius is a eunuch in the court of the emperor. He's the emperor's really good friend, and that's going to be important. Eusebius of Dorylium, he says, hey, this Eutyches, he keeps saying I'm an historian. I, I always feel like it's some little kid tattling in school, right? It's like, <laughs> so what do you care, right? right? So poor Flavian, the bishop, he's like, oh, well, okay, well, let's just call him in and, you know, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this, right? This doesn't seem that serious. They send for Eutyches. They go to get Eutyches and he's like, look, I'm, I'm not saying anything other than what the church fathers have said. They go, okay, so they come in, they report back. Yeah, Eutyches says he's not doing anything wrong. Well, we need to bring him in. Okay, so they go back to get him. And they're like, oh, he's sick. So they come back, they're like, he's sick. And then they're like, and Eusebius is like, I I'm tired of this. Bring him out. He's not sick. He's just feigning like he's sick. He's playing possum. So they go back and they're like, if you don't show up, you're going to end up being c condemned as a heretic if you don't show up, right? So Eutyches has to show up. But, but while he's there, they interview him. And they're like, so, you know, you keep calling people Nestorians. What's the deal? He goes, look, I'm not saying anything other than what the church fathers have said. I, st I stay with Cyril, I stay with Athanasius, and I stay with Scripture. This is, this is what I go with. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is God. Uh, he gets his humanity from Mary. He gets his flesh from Mary. And his flesh is not like ours. Okay, wait, what? What did you just say there? No, I'm not saying anything other than what the church fathers have said. I'm not saying anything else. Whoa, 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 hold on. Can we rewind this? What, what did you say there? His flesh is not like ours. No, I'm just saying what Cyril and Athena, I'm not saying anything new. Like, this is a little bit strange. Mm -hmm. So they, and his statement, he says a few other things that really like, yeah, this is orthodox. This is orthodox. And you're like, what does this mean? And Eutyches is a really strange individual because we really know hardly anything about him other than this account in the Acts of the Ecumenical Councils where we have all of this, all of this detail of these interviews. They convince Eutyches to come or he's going to be in trouble. And this is November of 448 AD and he shows up and Eusebius is like, yeah, there he is, right? Yeah, you got to, you know, fess up. And so they, they quiz him and he says, look, I'm not saying anything other than what the church fathers have said. I'm not saying anything other than what the councils have said. I'm not saying anything other than the scriptures have said. And and he basically repeats what he said. They they read this to him, and he continues to say, I'm not saying anything other than, what the, than what these people say. He goes, if you want me to condemn something, I'll do it just because you want me to do it. But, you know, really, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going outside what's been taught prior. They find his statement to be strange and heretical. What do you mean Jesus' flesh is not like ours? And he doesn't, he doesn't elaborate. And he kind of tries to get away from it. So they, they, they basically say, you're excommunicated. So this starts the machinery that is going to cause a lot of problems because Chrysaphius, well, first of all, Dioscorus in Alexandria, he goes, ha, this is what we need, right? It's almost like the elections, right? You have this bizarre thing taking place. And Dioscorus says, okay, what, what do we condemn people for? For heresy. How do we know what heresy is? the councils decide. Has a council ever declared this view to be heretical? No. 
he was accused unjustly. You don't have the authority to condemn him as a heretic unless he's guilty of breaking Council of Ephesus, Council of Constantinople, Council of Nicaea. None of this has been dealt with yet. You you went too far. Chrysaphius in the court of the emperor, he's like, hey, hey, these guys, they did, they, 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 they uh, usurped their authority. We need to put them on trial. Boom. Flavian, the poor, the bishop of Constantinople is put on trial because you see Eutyches got condemned unjustly. You can see all the political machinations here and Dioscorus is like, ha, we're going to end this Nestorian ideas because we're going to nail Flavian and then we're going to push through, right, that we will no longer say Christ exists in two natures. Nope, we're not going to say that. It's Nestorian. We're going to finish this. Eutyches, Dioscorus, and Chrysaphius is this, this triumvirate who are, are, are basically, you don't know if Eutyches is doing this intentionally or if he's just somebody who's caught up in it, but really these three are, are going to try to put an end to Nestorianism. The emperor calls a council. It's a council in Ephesus that we now call the Robber Synod. That's not what it was called at the time. It would have been the Council of Ephesus II. So it was that for two years before it gets overturned. And what happens here is Flavian goes on trial. Now, remember, I said this in, in the last podcast. The people you don't want to mess with are the monks. When the Eastern monks, the Western monks, they're fine, right? The Western monks, they don't bother you. The Eastern monks, if they get they're upset. They're just brewing beer and... Yeah, yeah. Finding Robin Hood and and they're happy. Yeah, just rolling yeah. around yeah. Sherwood Forest. And, <laughs> That's right, the friars yeah. in the east. When they get angry, they get mad. And so, well, no, that's the same thing. When they get angry, they put their anger into action. So, <laughs> Flavian, the bishop of Constantinople, is put on trial, and the local monks beat him up so badly he dies. Wow. So. Flavian dies. He's a heretic anyway, and he's condemned. And uh, as we see, he dies. Dioscorus wins the day. Now, what happens though in this council, the Pope weighs in on it, right? We like getting the Pope involved. He's going to support our side. Dioscorus contacts the Pope. The Pope sends in what's called the Tome of Leo. Now, when I think of a tome, I think of Gandalf in the library with these giant books, right? No, the tome's like 12 pages long. So I guess back then a tome was 12 pages. Now it's like 2,000, right? So anyway, Leo's letter or his tome does not support Dioscorus's view. It's kind of convoluted. I mean, he writes in Latin. His theology is kind of eh. And it actually sounds like it might even support a Nestorian type of view or certainly that language. The Pope's no Nestorian, but he likes the language Christ exists in two natures, which the other people would see that's Nestorian. So instead of using the Pope's tome, Dioscorus just doesn't even admit it as evidence and just kind of ignores it. Flavian is condemned. Uh, we're going to get rid of this language. And the Pope's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, hold on a second. I'm a bishop. I get to be heard. You didn't hear it. They're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, leave us alone. Because the emperor is on the side of Chrysaphius, who's on the side of Dioscorus, who's on the side of Eutyches. The political machinery doesn't care about it. We have our view pushed through. Christ is one nature out of two. We're done with any of this Nestorian stuff. Hooray, the emperor's on our side. 450 AD, one year later, the emperor gets thrown off his horse, breaks his neck, and dies. His wife hates Chrysaphius. She marries a guy, and she's like, all right, we're going to go back on trial again. She arranges to have this whole thing reopened. 
Leo is happy, his tome gets read, and in the proceedings, Eutyches is condemned again. Dioscorus is, he's not condemned, but he's basically accused of abusing his power. He's not condemned as a heretic, but he's removed because you, you abused the power you had. And then Chrysaphius is killed. They deal with that, and they come up with what's called the Council of Chalcedon, which uses language from Leo's tome, which affirms it's language that's, in, that's, that's very difficult on purpose, right? Christ exists without change, without division. It's trying to maintain he's fully human, fully divine. We don't know how this works together. But they explain it. When they get it, they're like, I don't really know what Leo's saying here. So they interpret Leo's tome using Cyrillian constructs. So really what they're doing is they're affirming Cyril's theology. And so in 451, we're good. We get rid of Eutyches. We get rid of these people who are anti-Nestorian sounding language. Now, like I said, Nestorius held this language, but you can have the view that Christ exists in two natures and not be Nestorian. I don't think any of these people are Nestorian. They're just using language which you can perceive to be Nestorian if you want to. When we go back and look at what Eutychianism is, we only know that one phrase he says that Christ's flesh is not like ours. What does that mean? I really think Eutyches is trying to affirm the mystery, and I think he's trying to affirm that Christ, being fully God and fully man, is not like we are because we're not fully God. You read anybody on the matter, and they're like, I think he's just, a well, I've, I've got to remember, I think it's Norman who calls him a muddle-headed monk, which made me take, <laughs> get irritated to research the entire thing to come out at the end going, I think he's right. I think he just is just using theologically, theologically imprecise language. I, I don't think he would actually be considered a Eutychian according to the official definition, which is a blending of the natures. Uh, Eutychianism is the view that Christ is somehow a human divine figure mixed together where he's not really divine or human. He's somehow a mixture of two. In our last episode, we were using Plato to explain this, where if you have yellow Plato represent the humanity of Christ and blue Plato represent the divinity of Christ, if you mix them together, you get green. Green is not yellow. Green is not blue. Green is not humanity. Green is not divinity. What is it? It's something else. It's a third thing, a tertium quid, which goes all the way back to Apollinarius in 381. They use that term for him. So Eutychianism is condemned because it's seen as this blending of natures, which unfortunately does not end the controversy because if you're familiar at all today with the Coptic Church, the Coptic Church is a monophysite church, which means they use the language Christ exists one nature out of two. They never buy into the language they perceive as Nestorian. I don't think they're Eutychian, but they cannot understand how you can use Nestorian-sounding language and not be Nestorian. So I look at the, Cop the Coptic church and I go, I think we actually agree. When you look at the, the theologians that come after Eutyches that we call monophysite, meaning Christ is one nature out of two, they are orthodox. Severus of Antioch, you read them, you're going, you're reading Cyril. He sounds just like Cyril, but he removes himself from fellowship with the Chalcedonians, those who affirm Christ is uh, exists in two natures. Like I said, I think theologically he's the same, but he cannot get past that language. Nobody ever affirms Eutychianism. Everybody says they're not a, Eutyche, uh, a follower of Eutyches, and yet you have people who are truly Eutychian, 
that would disavow you tickies. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Your view here is surely you ticky and by the real sense. And if you don't follow your tickies, maybe it means that he was just confused and not the heretic we think he is. I'm not going to resurrect a heretic and say he's okay. But, I mean, he, his language was imprecise, but I don't think he really was believes what we attribute to him. Two questions. First, politics, scandal, murder. Has the screenplay been written for the story of Eutyches? Oh, that would be a good one. <laughs> Question two. I hear this objection a lot. It comes from a wide array of backgrounds, from atheists to Latter-day Saints to Muslims. And it is that politics meddled with orthodoxy. It was government that shaped our Christian beliefs. And the story that you've told about Eutyches is undeniably perhaps evidence of politicking, swaying orthodoxy one way or another. What would you say to that? Is, is that what's happening here? Or is that a vehicle that theology is using to clarify itself? I think that it's it's often overstated, the role of politics, and I think the best way to see this is in the 300s. In the 4th century, right, you have Constantine in 325, who just affirms whatever ruling they come up with. But in the 300s, you have emperors who are clearly Arian and support Arianism, and yet the the bishops and there are large numbers well some bishops are appointed by the emperor but but the regular run of the mill person they don't they don't they they don't buy it right they are not arian and and so the church is declared arian because the emperor is forcing it to be that way but the people are not and as soon as they get those emperors out they remain they come back to orthodoxy they don't go I'll be Arian today, now I'm going back. So my view would be in that regard that really what you see is truth coming through. Sometimes the truth is aided by the political situation, but I think whenever, sometimes it's hindered, but it's still there. And I think the clearest way to see that politics is not the main thing shaping theology is that when the politics is against orthodoxy, the orthodoxy still wins out in the end, mm -hmm. which means that the political situation was against it and it still came out. And like I said, the fourth century, I think is the clearest example of that. In, in the 5th century, again, I think you have enough people who are on the side of orthodoxy that even when the politics get involved, the people know something's wrong. Mm -hmm. They go, wait, this isn't right. We can't do anything about it politically because of the situation. But as soon as, as a political situation comes back into their liking, they get it through. I, I do think that in the 5th century, there's a lot more politics than the 4th. The fourth has politics, but I think the fifth is where you really see it start to get, in my mind, very messy. And I think also the ideas that you're dealing with are further down the road of biblical speculation. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when, when you look at Christ in the Bible, you're not thinking about how does his humanity and divinity go together? I mean, you might. I mean, sometimes it comes up, right? Sometimes people say, oh, well, Jesus could fast for 40 days because he was God. I'm like, okay, you're a, you're a Eutychian right mm -hmm. there. You've blended his natures together. Or it could be a Nestorian if you've separated them, but then the humanity would die. So I guess you're just a Eutychian. But you can see that it actually plays out in that regard because if Christ is somehow Eutychian, well, then he's really not like us. And when, when you read that, that 
he is tempted in all ways like we are, but without sin. Well, if he's really this divine figure, then really, is he really tempted like we are? If, if, he's not really like us. So you, I feel like you don't have an appropriate mediator at that point because he's really not like us mm-hmm. if he's Eutychian. But I think when, when even, even the division that you see today with the Coptic church and the Chalcedonian church or the Orthodox church, I really think theologically they're on the same page, you know? So even with all the political stuff, I'm like, I think you guys are actually saying the same thing. It's just that somehow you can't agree to understand each other's language. And so you think there's a problem when there's not. I also look, if you're looking at political situations throughout the middle ages, you have a a political situation that has a lot more power to influence what goes on in the church. And yet you still see pockets of what I would consider to be true, true orthodoxy is there the whole time. It's sometimes uh, muted, but when Luther comes out with his views, he's really not saying anything that's that's new. It's stuff that had been said prior. It's just that he was at the right time, at the right place, under the right circumstances for it to really blossom. But he's not saying a whole lot different than John Huss or John Wycliffe. I mean, I think the truth is there regardless of what the government says. So I don't think that orthodoxy is determined by the government. I think orthodoxy is there. Sometimes the government affirms it. Sometimes the government opposes it. And... If it affirms it, great. If it opposes it, it just lives on under the surface. No, that's good. I'm glad you asked that. I was going to ask a similar question of what kind of apologetic does the history of councils and debates, Christological controversies, monks beating up accused heretics, uh, what kind of apologetic does that provide for the church or um, challenge does it present to Christians who would seek to defend its purity over and against its more obvious sins to skeptics or outsiders. And, mm-hmm. um, so I'm glad, I'm glad Kyle asked the question because you could see how someone looking in from the outside would say, how far removed from Jesus are we at this point? And it didn't take long. You just have to read First Corinthians to realize that, you know, Heresies among the you. nascent church, the infant church, uh, yeah, you know, you're dealing with incest and a variety of issues, um, abuse of the Lord's Supper and things. So I think I, I think one of the things that it, it points out in a good way is it points out the sinfulness of man, which means we always have to point back to Christ. Like I always look at, you know, you look at the Bible other than Boaz, who, who who's my favorite figure in the Old Testament. He's not in the Bible long enough to sin. Right. But you look at all the major players and they all sin, which points us to Christ. Right. We don't focus on Moses. We don't focus on Elijah. We focus on Christ. You know, these people all sin. Peter, Paul, all these people. Uh, and in the church, it's no different. And I think when you, when you look at the councils, and I would contend especially with the robber synod, this, I mean, I don't know how you can explain beating up somebody as, as a biblical position. Right. And I don't know, I mean, I'm looking back, I'm trying to think, I don't ever remember reading anything where, where I don't think they had a problem with the fact they killed the dude. Yeah. Like, nobody's like, oh, I can't believe we actually killed him. I'm like, yeah, well, he, guess what he does? You know, it's like, yeah, he deserved that. He's it's, a heretic. It's, it's what it seems like. Mm-hmm. And now, now, they didn't kill heretics at the time, at least not on purpose. They weren't supposed to beat him up, but he did. They'll kill him in the Middle Ages. You know, and I think you look at that and you go, well, that just shows the sinfulness of man and the need for a savior. And, it, and then you get the point to Christ. The problem that it brings up, like you said, is they're going, well, if, we're, if the church acted incorrectly here, how do we know they ever acted correctly? Which, of course, then we have to judge it by the scripture, right? We have to say, mm-hmm. well, here's what the scripture teaches. Therefore, the way that they acted, this is acceptable, this is unacceptable. And it goes with us today, right? I mean, we have to remember that it applies to us today. In the Southern Baptist controversy of the 70s and 80s, 
I was not a part of it, but I had a professor who said, you know, there were people on both sides, on, on the moderate side and on the conservative side, who really were completely ungodly in the way they, they spoke, treated the other people. I mean, it was basically just like what was happening back then, just without the fisticuffs. But I'm sure probably a few times it came close. Uh, so, so, you know, we're not that far removed from these kind of things. And you see differing views over the last election, you know, with, with Christians thinking different things and how tense that can get, which, again, should make us focus on Christ, you know, be convicted by the Holy Spirit, looking at our own lives and seeing, you know, where am I falling short? And you'd think that if everybody were to do this, the councils would run much smoother. But, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, sin is a takes a weighty toll. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. There's there's one quotation from C.S. Lewis I would like to read that I think at least has some tangential connection to to what we're talking about. He's looking at the heresy of modernism or liberal Christianity, so to speak, and dealing with the objection from the 20th century modernist that would say, "Why don't you just get rid of all of these mythological trappings that Christianity is embarrassingly caught up in like resurrection and miracles and the supernatural and just throw away that mythological husk from a primitive, less intelligent age and keep the ethics, love of neighbor, etc. So when Lewis is talking about the myth of Christianity in this, he's speaking of those more enduring aspects that are at the center of the incarnation, the story of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. So he says, the real answer of even the most modernist Christianity to Corineus, Corineus is his hypothetical modernist that he's objecting to here. <laughs> the real answer of even the most modernist Christianity to Corineus is the same. Even assuming, which I most constantly deny, that the doctrines of historic Christianity are merely mythical, it is the myth which is the vital and nourishing element in the whole concern. Corineus wants us to move with the times. Now we know where the times move, they move away. But in religion, we find something that does not move away. And so here he's going to talk about the obstinacy of truth. That's Mm -hmm. not his words, but I think that was in your answer of what you were saying of, despite the sinfulness of man, the politics, the power plays, how poorly uh, disagreements may have been dealt with, the obstinacy of truth wins out and continues and endures. So Lewis says, the times move away, but in religion we find, and he's thinking primarily of Orthodox Christianity here, we find, or mere Christianity as he would call it later, but in religion we find something that does not move away. It is what Corineus calls the myth that abides. It is what he calls the modern and living thought that moves away. Not only the thought of theologians, but the thought of anti-theologians. Where are the predecessors of Corineus? Where is the Epicureanism of Lucretius, the pagan revival of Julian the Apostate? Where are the Gnostics? Where is the monism of Averroes, the deism of Voltaire, the dogmatic materialism of the great Victorians? They have moved with the times, but the thing they were all attacking remains. Corineus finds it still there to attack. The myth, to speak his language, has outlived the thoughts of all of its defenders and of all of its adversaries. It is the myth that gives life. Those elements, even in modernist Christianity, which Corineus regards as vestigial, are the substance. What he takes for the real modern belief, quote-unquote, is the shadow. That's good. I I like that. Mm -hmm. I I need to use that in my worldview class. I always tell my students, I say, you know, if you look at liberal theologians, and I I use, for example, Paul Tillich. All right, so Paul Tillich, a major theologian, 1950s, 
and and I and I go, what do you know of Paul Tillich? Nothing. Exactly. Nobody knows anything of Paul Tillich anymore because he wrote for his audience at that time for specific issues at that time that no longer are issues, right? You know, existentialism, eh, nobody cares. I'm like, but you know of Jonathan Edwards, you know of G.K. Chesterton or Spurgeon or Luther because they're always pointing to Christ or they should be, right? So when you read these people, it has a lasting impact because their their argument is timeless. What they're pointing to is timeless it's it's always relevant it's always convicting if you're only dealing with you look at all you know friedrich schleiermacher uh, albrecht Rischel. you look at these people you're like nobody reads them anymore in fact i have a, a friend who's recently basically just repeating these arguments and i'm like have you ever read the social gospel by mm -hmm. rauschenbusch because you're just saying the same thing he said 100 years ago you got nothing new to offer and his stuff didn't help you think this is all new it's been done before and it never worked but you can go back and read the Christian authors and they're always, they always have something to say because they're always pointing back to Christ. They're always pointing to the gospel, which addresses man's real needs that are timeless, right? A need for a savior, a need to be made right with God. That's always relevant. And these people are it's like, it's not contingent on who's in power or exactly. who the emperor is or who the Pope is for that matter. Exactly. So what? What's the matter with you tickies anyway? Well, unfortunately, his view detracts from Christ's ability to truly be like us in terms of his humanity. If Christ's divine and human natures are so blended together as to be indistinguishable in a third new nature, how could he be, as the author of Hebrews says, tempted like us in every way? Well, if anything, the story of Eutyche shows that sin can enter into even our theological speculation of who God is in the person and work of Christ. However, contrary to critics of Christianity, the core of the gospel's truth has remained and will do so despite the world's powers and politics. Even when a political situation is against the truth of the gospel, in the end, history has shown that orthodoxy wins out. Well, the Christmas season is upon us and here at So What Podcast, we will be taking a break for the next month. We hope that you tune back in on January 16th for the next episode as we begin to wind down our series on the gospel according to the heretics.